Tonight we're continuing our study of Paul's book to the Galatians. When we last met and looked at this, we focused on a word rescued which captured the early part of chapter 1. And what we're doing in this particular study is not necessarily going verse by verse, but we're looking at five major topics or themes that the Apostle Paul brings out in Galatians. And it's important to you because the way that you're living may not be the way that he has provided for you. The way that you're living may be much more difficult than he had in mind. And the way that you're living may not reflect the truth of the gospel. And so that was the problem the Galatians were experiencing. And so he wrote this letter to them. And in our first study, we really focused on verses, uh, really verse 4 and 5, who gave himself for our sins, speaking of Jesus, that he might deliver us from this present evil age. And we focus on the fact that before we understand anything else about what God has done for you and me, I need to understand that I'm a rescued person who was in danger, and he reached down and rescued me. And do you have a sense that you've been rescued? Is that your experience? And, um, and so Paul starts there, I mean, in the very opening verses. And the word that we're going to focus on tonight is the word justified, and to get us to that, because I want to focus on verse 16 of chapter 2, but to get us to that verse, I want to briefly look at the verses we're not studying in depth for just a moment. In verses 10 through 24 of chapter 1. And I wish um, we had time to read it, but we don't. And so I've encouraged you to read through the book of Galatians, and, um, and, and this will make sense to you. If you did read beforehand, uh, you're, you'll be ready to go. But in verses 10 to 24, uh, Paul is combating this false teaching that has been plaguing him as he has gone from place to place and presented the gospel. These other teachers would come in behind him, and they would criticize him as a person. They would attack him as a man. They would also undermine and attack his teaching about grace. And so they were trying to add something to the gospel of grace. And that was really what they were doing. Uh, Paul stresses the supernatural origins of his message. And, and he does that in a couple ways. For example, uh, in verses 10 to 12 in that area, uh, Paul's criticized because he did not spend time in Jerusalem being instructed by the apostles. These guys came along and said, we're from Jerusalem. Uh, we know the apostles. They're our friends. We're tight. And Paul, he's never spent any significant time with them. And, um, and so he doesn't know what we know. Oh, yes, he follows Christ, and he's, he's put his trust in Jesus. But he doesn't know the whole story the way that we do. And so Paul was criticized because he did that. Well, Paul doesn't disagree with them. In fact, he agrees. He said, I haven't spent time with them. And he stresses uh, his lack of interaction with the apostles. In fact, it says in this um, verse 18, he said, After three years I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter and remained with him for 15 days. And so after he became a Christian, three years, and then he goes up there for 15 days. And he really just sees uh, Peter and James on that visit. That was it. And then, if you go to uh, chapter 2, verse 1, uh, it says that after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and also took Titus with me. 
And so three years, 15 days, 14 more years, and then he makes a second visit. So in 17 years of being a Christian and a preacher of the gospel, he's only been in Jerusalem for 15 days, he said. So he says, sure, I, I haven't spent time with the apostles. He didn't argue with that. Now, in, as you move into chapter 2 in verses 1 to 10, Paul describes a visit where he submitted his gospel to the other apostles in Jerusalem. This is 17 years after he became a Christian. He goes to Jerusalem and he says, this is what I'm preaching, this is what I'm teaching. And the leaders, in, uh, if you read verses 1 to 3, they essentially agreed that the gospel did not have to include the teachings of the Torah or the law. They agreed with him. And he even uses the example uh, that, that Titus was with him, who was a Greek and he was a Christ follower. They didn't have to be circumcised. He, these apostles agreed to a Torah-free gospel, that you didn't have to add anything else to it. The agitators who were at this meeting, the people who had been following Paul along, they lost this argument in Jerusalem, Paul says. And the leaders affirmed the gospel, and in verse 6 it specifically says, they added nothing to me. They added nothing to what I was preaching and teaching. Nothing. And so, can you see what he's saying to the Galatians? You've got these people coming in, they're telling you, you've got to do this, and you've got to do that, since you follow Christ. And he's saying, look, I've been to Jerusalem, I've talked to the apostles, they added nothing to what I teach. And so the leaders recognize Paul's unique calling. Uh, in verses 6 to 10, he goes to great lengths to point out that the apostles said, we're going to go to the Jewish people and preach the gospel. You are going to go to the Gentiles and preach the gospel. And that was his mission. Well, um, in verses 11 to 18 of chapter 2, we're getting closer to our verse, uh, Paul describes a confrontation with leaders from Jerusalem who were not living out what they believed. Uh, it happened in Antioch. Uh, for some time he had been ministering to these Gentiles. Peter comes. Peter's eating with them. Do you remember the significance in Middle Eastern culture of eating with someone? It, it, it was a picture of great intimacy and friendship to do that. Peter was eating with the Gentiles. And then he says some men came from Jerusalem from the apostle James and Peter picked up his tray <laughs> and went over and sat with the people from Jerusalem and acted like he would have nothing to do with the Gentiles. That put pressure on the Gentiles in two ways. They either had to conform to the Torah, they had to act Jewish, or they had to become a second class type of Christian in the church. So Paul takes this table of unity. I mean, Peter has taken this table of unity. He's turned it into a table of separation that's dividing the church. And Paul comes back and says, you can't do that. And you know, Peter, of all people, if you remember in Acts chapter 10, Peter, of all people, had a vision of unclean animals that came from heaven and a voice from heaven telling him to eat the unclean animals. Of all people, he should have understood what God was saying to him about Gentiles and the gospel. And, uh, but he had not applied it. And it took a long time for Jewish Christians to truly become comfortable with saying that faith alone and Christ alone is all that's necessary for a person to be saved. 
tonight, for the sake of discussion, I want to call this the grace and message. The grace and message. We may not realize it. You may not even be conscious of it. But in your own walk with God, you may be a victim of the grace and teaching, just like the people in Galatia were. And the grace and message is suggesting that it is not enough to trust Jesus to be saved and to be justified. We're going to talk about that word in just a moment. It's not enough. If you're a Christian person, you've got to do a whole list of things in order for God to be pleased with you. And so it's not enough to say grace alone and Christ alone, faith alone, by the grace of God, that I can be saved. Why are we so attracted to that? You may be a person that never feels like God fully accepts you. I'm not going to ask you to amen that or raise your hand. But in counseling over the years, I've dealt with a lot of Christians who come in and they feel absolutely unacceptable to God. And it doesn't matter what they do, how much they get right, how well they live, they feel that God does not accept them. That they should be doing something else. They should be doing something more to be acceptable to him. And our hearts go there. Um, it's also attractive when someone comes along. In fact, the churches that uh, tend to attract largest crowds are those that don't put less demands on their members, but those that put more demands on their members. And there's nothing wrong with that. I think we ought to keep the bar high and what it means to be a part of a church. But I am fear that one of the reasons some people are attracted to that is because it makes them um, feel like they're accomplishing something. That God is actually more pleased with me when I do certain things than when I don't do them. So why are we so attracted to the grace and message? Let me just mention three things briefly. First, the grace and message, the grace and message is clear. I mean, it was very clear. They weren't saying you had to keep the whole law, but as we get into Galatians, you'll see that they're talking about keeping holy days, certain dietary requirements, certain Jewish practices. Do these, these basic things, and you'll be in the covenant people like the Jewish people. And it's attractive. When someone comes along and sets out exactly what we need to do in order to be right with God, it's clearer to us, and we see a to-do list. We like that. A second reason I think we're attracted to it is the grace and message puts us in control. We don't like being told we're not in control. We don't like being told there's nothing we can do for ourselves. That, that no matter what we do in a million years, we wouldn't be good enough. We don't like that. It goes against our pride. And our flesh doesn't like that. With grace, we come just as we are without one plea. With a grace and message, we come with a to-do list. Checking all things as we go so we can feel that we are truly saved. There's a third reason I think we're attracted. The grace and message allows you to compare yourself. To compare yourself. With a message of grace, you can't say who's better than everyone else. You can't. And, um, and while grace and message makes it very clear, who's, it also makes it very clear who's getting it right and who's getting it wrong. With a grace and message, we look at certain Christians and we say, um, they're not as good as we are. And uh, we've got it more right. We've got it, we're more correct than they are. 
The person who has succumbed to the grace and message, if you talk to them about their walk with God, you're going to hear the word try a lot. You're going to hear them say, well, I'm trying. I'm trying to live the Christian life. I'm trying to do what God wants me to do. You're going to hear that a lot. And a person who's saying that they're trying has fallen into this mindset. They do not understand who they are in Christ. And as we continue our Sunday morning studies in Matthew 11, I think that'll be more clear. Jesus never asked you to live the Christian life. He asked you to die. And we'll see that more clearly as we go through this book. Well, here's the question of the night. What does it mean to live as a justified person? This word justified, I'm going to confine to pretty much to what it says right here in Paul's uh, book of Galatians. We could go all over the New Testament and all over the Old Testament to talk about this word justified. It is one of the most central theological concepts that we have as Christians. And it is important. It's important to you not only spiritually, but I'm going to argue that it's also important to you psychologically. Your emotions, your sense of how much God loves you and your experience of the love of God. And so I want to, I want to zero in on, on uh, verse 16. And uh, so Paul's had this debate, this argument with these people. Uh, that they were not acting consistently with the gospel, that, that is only by grace that we come to God. We don't add anything at all to it. And then we come down to verse 16, and listen to what he says. Listen to what he writes. Um, let me start at verse 15. We who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Who's we? Jewish Christians. Even we have believed that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. For the, by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. Now that is, that's an astounding statement in that day and time. The, the mindset of the rabbis, the rabbinic teaching, was this. Uh, they would not necessarily have argued with the idea that a person is, is saved by justification or by grace. They wouldn't necessarily argue with that. Here's the deal. Your, your goal in life is to try to please God as much as you can by doing all the right things that you can. All the right things that you can. And your goal is to do more right things than wrong things so that when judgment day came and you clearly had done more right things than wrong things, then God would acquit you of the rest of it. He would, he would forgive you the rest of it and you would be justified at that time. Now here's the problem with that. You never knew what deed put you over the edge one way or the other. You didn't know the value of an act. And so you never knew you're standing ultimately before God. You never knew if you were, you were in or whether you were out. And, um, and then you never knew uh, ultimately until the very end whether you were in or whether you were out. Do you feel that way? Do you experience that in your walk with God? Don't know if you're in or out? Say, well, Pastor, I did trust Jesus as my Lord and Savior. I did trust him to save me. I, I know that the Bible says if I trust him, he forgives me and washes away all my sins. But to be honest with you, I'm not sure if I'm in 
or if I'm out. I still sin. I still mess up. And I'm just not so sure. You know, people live with that mentality. There are whole Christian denominations that teach that grace is not enough. I remember visiting a man in an ICU. And he was scared to death that he was dying. And he was from another Christian tradition that taught that you didn't know whether you could be saved or not. And I asked the man why he was afraid. And he said, well, I'm afraid that just before I die, I'm going to say the wrong thing to a nurse. And that at that moment, I'm going to die, and that sin's going to follow me into eternity. And I'm going to mess it up. That's grace and. And I said, well, you know that Jesus died for you on the cross. He really didn't want to hear that because he knew I was a Baptist and he wasn't. And that was all that was in his mind. This person's a Baptist and I'm not. And, and, and he said, you know, we can't really talk about that. I said, no, 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 wait a minute. Even in the church that you attend, they believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins, right? Yes. Well, why would Jesus die on the cross for your sins and suffer the horrendous death that he experienced? Only so that you would die in utter fear and not know you're standing before God. Doesn't make sense. Jesus didn't die on the cross so you'd be afraid. He didn't die on the cross so you'd wonder. Jesus didn't die on the cross so you would be in this fog of whether you're in or whether you're out. What does it mean to live as a justified person? Let's look at what Paul's saying here. First, it means I am pardoned from guilt even though I am guilty of wrong. I am pardoned from guilt even though I am guilty of wrong. The word justified for the Jew um, meant being declared righteous after you had performed a, a bunch of meritorious deeds. And then you got justified at the end. Paul is saying in this verse that justified for the Christian is simply someone who has faith in Christ. Secondly, what does it mean to live as a justified person? Not only are you pardoned from guilt, but listen to this, I have become right with God without doing what is right. And I'm not putting that statement out there for shock value. You really need to understand that that's what justification accomplishes. You are made right with God, but you become right with God without doing what is right. In verse 16 he says, a man is not justified by the works of the law, in the early part of the verse. A man is not justified by the works of the law. And then later at the end he says, by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. You see, the word justified, and it's, and it's really, the English word and the Greek word are very much alike. Usually we have to try to explain the two separately. That's not the case here. The word justified does not change what you have done. It changes the way God sees what you have done. It doesn't change what you have done. It changes the way God sees what you have done. Sarah McKinley was an 18-year-old teenage widow whose husband had died of lung cancer on Christmas Day, 2011. A week later, on New Year's Day, 2012, in Blanchard, Oklahoma, she was home alone in her mobile home with her three-month-old when a man tried to break and enter into her, her home. 
She pushed a couch in front of the door as he was pounding and trying to break into the house. She took her baby away from that room. She put a bottle in his mouth. She grabbed her dead husband's shotgun and a pistol that she had in her bedroom. And then she called 911. When the dispatcher answered, she explained what was happening as calmly as she could. And then she said this, I've got two guns in my hand. Is it okay to shoot him if he comes in the door? 18 years old, single mom. The dispatcher named Diane Graham said, well, you have to do whatever you can do to protect yourself. I can't tell you that you can do that, but you can do what you have to to protect your baby. The man did break into the house. He had a knife in his hand. He was moving to attack her, and with a single blast from her shotgun, she killed him. Turned out there was another man outside who heard the blast, and he left, later arrested and charged. The authorities determined that her action was determined to be justifiable since she acted in self-defense. And yet her action was no different than the action of someone who commits murder. The actual action itself, taking another human life, is identical to the act of murder. It didn't change her action, but the view of her action is what made the difference. And the view was that her action was justified. To become a Christian is not to become a good person. Sometimes we have the idea that when I become a Christian, now I'm good. And I try to maintain that goodness or to be a, a good person. And I'm not saying we shouldn't be good, but listen to me. The essence of being a Christian, what happens when God saves you and me, is not about you and I becoming good. Becoming good is a result of becoming a Christian. But it is not the essence of becoming a Christian. When you become a Christian, you are justified without doing what is right. It does not mean that you suddenly stop being bad. It means that you are no longer viewed that way by your Father. It means your sins can no longer bring you into condemnation. It means you are accepted. It means you are righteous in God's sight. And brother or sister who struggles with being accepted by God, this is not fiction. This is a fact, as the Apostle Paul teaches it. You are truly right with God when you put your trust in Jesus Christ. You are truly viewed by Him as right, accepted, beloved. For the Jew, it was settled on Judgment Day. For the Christian, it was settled now. Justified in Christ. Every other religion says that you are a sinner trying to be righteous or you are a righteous person who's trying not to sin. It is only Christianity that says that you are an honored failure in the sight of God. In Romans 4, 5, chapter 4, verse 5, the Apostle Paul says it got, that God justifies the ungodly. He justifies the ungodly. Doesn't justify the good person. He justifies a person who is absolutely a failure. And all of us are in that category. And so what we've done hasn't changed. We truly have done wrong. But we are viewed 
as being right with him. The third thing that happens, I cannot improve what I have already become through faith in Christ. I cannot improve what I have already become through faith in Christ. Again in verse 16 he says, By faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we might be justified by faith in Christ. He's saying that not even the best Jewish practitioner, the apostles themselves, even they had been justified in Christ. The same way as everybody else. No one on the planet can add anything to what Jesus has already done. And when I sin, and when you sin after you've trusted Christ, when you sin, it does not in any way diminish your standing before God. Not one inch. Nothing changes. Neither improved or diminished when I sin. No change at all. Now, does my sin affect my relationship with God? Well, of course it does. And, um, and I need to confess my sin to the Father. I need to be washed clean. 1 John 1, 9 says, if we are confessing our sin, if that's a habit of life with us, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. So sure, my sin affects my experience of intimacy with God. But it does not affect the way God sees me does not change the way he loves me, does not change the way I stand before him because we are in Christ. In 2010, hard to believe, but I did finish the Little Rock Marathon. What are you laughing at? I did, 2010. That was some 60 pounds ago, but I did. The winning time in 2010, the Little Rock Marathon, was two hours and 29 minutes and 40 seconds. Two hours, 29 minutes and 40 seconds. A man named Moninda Marube, not from around here, he finished first. Two hours, 29 minutes, 40 seconds. He won the race. You know what justification is? Justification would be he wins the race, and I come by about three hours later, And when I cross that finish line, they cheer for me and hand me the winner's medal as if I had come in first place. You understand that's what God did for you and me. Jesus won the race. Jesus did what I could never do. Lived the life I could never live. Deal with my sin in a way I could never deal with my sin. And when I am in Christ, I receive the benefit and everything that's true of Jesus in relationship to sin and death and the Father becomes true of me. We're going to talk about that next week when we take up the word crucified and we see how it's through our union with Christ that all these things become true of you and me. I want you to look at one thing as we close. Um, look up on the screen. You might even want to flip your handout over if this is helpful to you because I have used this illustration when I've shared the gospel with people over the years. But, but I want you to pretend that you have an eternal account with God. And on Judgment Day, these accounts are a real phenomenon, the Bible says, that the books are going to be opened and so forth. And, um, and so you might write your name up there by the word account holder because that's your account that will be judged. 
and on the right side of the screen you see sins on account. So just think of two or three. And then imagine how many pages follow those. I mean how many that there are. Sins on account. Okay. And then I want you to look at the left side and I got to be honest with you, you've got to leave it blank. Good works on account, you don't have any. You say, well, how is that possible? Well, there's so much teaching in Scripture on this. Isaiah 64, 6, for example, says, but we are all like an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses, isn't that interesting? All of our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. And so on this left side of the account, I've got nothing there. <laughs> nothing. And so if that's the condition of my books on Judgment Day, I really have a problem. And people who come to that throne, that judgment throne with only their works to commend them are in deep trouble. They are truly lost. And we're in our eternity without forgiveness for their sins. So here's what happens. Go ahead and uh, hit it. On the right side, Jesus Christ, in dying for me on the cross, took my sins on his body, and he took the punishment that my sins deserve. So guess what remains in that column? Well, all the sins are there. They don't necessarily go away. But God sees them differently. That's what justification is. He sees them differently. He sees now the blood of Jesus Christ on the account for my sin. That everything my sins deserved in the way of retribution and justice before a holy God, they have been canceled. I have been, in one sense, already punished. My sins have been forgiven in Jesus Christ. It's done. But there's more. Sounds like a commercial, doesn't it? Look at the next side. The part that was empty is now supplied by the righteousness of Christ. In other words, everything that the Father ever required of me in terms of a holy life in terms of a life doing his will, everything that he wanted me to do, everything that, that he had in mind for me to be, where my life was lived perfectly to honor him, everything that could ever be imagined to be a good work, I don't have that, but Jesus does. And so God no longer sees the empty column. He looks at that empty column differently. What does he see? He sees all of the righteousness of Jesus Christ, his life. And then it's credited to my account. If you're a financial mind, this should be setting off, you know, light bulbs in your heart. Because this is exactly what the Scripture teaches is going to happen on Judgment Day for the Christian. It's not that suddenly my sins don't exist. Or suddenly my empty column is populated by things that I have done. Far from that, God now sees it differently because I am in Christ. And when you trust Jesus, he puts you in Christ also. Tonight, I want us to take a few moments to respond to what the Lord has said. If you're a person with, who struggles continually with a sense that God does not accept you, can I pray for you tonight? Just a moment before we sing, I'm going to ask you to bow your heads. And, and I want to pray for you. Because your feelings are telling you something that's simply not true if you have, in fact, trusted Jesus. It is your flesh, it is the devil, 
it is our culture that says that is not possible. It's just not possible. You're either a sinner trying to be good enough or you're a righteous person trying to keep from sinning. You can't be both. And, um, and yet, in fact, that's who we are. God sees us. Even though we're sinners, he sees us in his son. So I wonder if you struggle with that. I wonder if that plagues your heart. I wonder if that's crippling to you. I mean, I've known dear ones who have been crippled by that. And tonight, if you've never trusted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, if you know right now that if you were to die and go before a holy God, that your books would be empty on the good work side and populated with sin on the other side, and you got nothing to show God of your own. And you're not ready to die. You're not ready to enter eternity. And tonight, if you're prepared to put your trust in Jesus Christ, I'm going to invite you publicly to do it. Jesus said, if you will profess me, confess me publicly before men. I'll confess you before my Father who is in heaven. And then he just turns it around, says the exact opposite. says, if you won't confess me before men, I won't confess you before my Father. So he really does expect that. Now, it doesn't have to be in a service like this. It could be out there in the street. It could be out there with your family. It could be out with your neighbors and so forth. You should be a person who's always confessing Jesus. But tonight, if you've never trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior, I want to invite you to come. There'll be pastors standing here. They'll pray with you. They'll answer your questions. They'll share scripture with you if you still have questions about what I've been talking about. But you can leave here tonight with a totally different set of books. Sins canceled and forgiven. And then a credit of the righteousness of Jesus that you don't deserve. And it can be the beginning of a brand new life. A brand new life. Let me ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes. Every head bowed and every eye closed. If you are a man or a woman, boy or girl, and you've trusted Jesus Christ, but you just struggle with feeling accepted, with feeling like it's true about you, maybe true of somebody else, but you don't feel like it's true of you, and you struggle with that, you're in a spiritual battle. And as your brother, I want to pray for you. So if that is your struggle, before we go into our invitation time, every head bowed and every eye closed, would you just lift your hand up and then put it back down? You wrestle with that. Thank you. Thank you. Anybody else? Thank you. Thank you. You've trusted Jesus, but you are just not confident that he's accepted you. That's not your experience. Anybody else? Anybody else? Okay. Anybody else? All right, let's pray together, and then we'll respond to the Lord. Father, thank you. Thank you for the amazing thing that you have done for us through the cross of Jesus Christ and through the life of Jesus. We are grateful to you that even while we were ungodly, that you died for us and you justified us. And this word, this legal word, Father, for some of us, it doesn't translate into a change of heart, change of emotion. And some of us are still wrestling with, could it be true? Could it really be true that you see us that differently? And everything in your word says it is true. That once we trust Jesus Christ and you put us and you unite us with him, you don't see us anymore the same way. You see your son. You love your son. 
and you love us just like your son. And so, Father, I pray for those dear ones that lifted their hands, and I pray you would grant them relief from the lies of the enemy. Enable them, Father, to release whatever sense of condemnation the devil hurls at them because of their past. I pray that you would take your word that we have looked at tonight and through your Holy Spirit, I pray you would set them free from the bondage and the battle that they're experiencing. May their feelings be transformed by simply trusting in your word, trusting your truth. Fathers, we enter this time of response. We want to be obedient to what you have said to each of us. And may we go from this place having worshiped you and rejoiced in the way that you see us. For we pray this in Jesus' name.